In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favoured woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could, be, could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favour with God. You will receive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the, the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby, will be, the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month, for the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. As we dive in this morning, perhaps some of the questions may be really is like, why? Why are we doing a series like this? Why are we walking through the creed together? And the primary reason is, what? well, there's several reasons. One of the reasons is, is doctrine matters. What we believe matters. And we said this the very first week as we talked about, as we kicked off that statement, I believe, we started by talking about like this is not just a statement of faith, but rather a declaration of faith. It's one that, that guides us and directs our steps. It, it helps us to walk in the way of the Lord and it changes who we are as people. Because here's the reality. Christianity is not primarily about action and behaving. It's about knowing God. So that's what we want for us. Is like We want to actually know God. We want to know the true God. The God who wants us to come into His presence and be with Him that's what we want to do. And now what happens is we get to know God. It transforms the way that we live. or It does change our actions and our behaviors. But we want to, to spend more time knowing deeply, truly knowing our Father. And so last week we dived into the part of the creed about Jesus. And this is, if you're reading and paying attention to the size of the creed, this is the most significant long part of the creed. Is most of it is focused in on Jesus. And so what happens is it kind of changes pace. It speeds up and it begins to rush through the foundational beliefs about Jesus. So last week was kind of the foundation of who Jesus is. And now over the next several weeks, it's going to go through Christmas, Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. It's going to race through all of those days that we have on our calendars. And it's going to be, it's, it's distilling down what we believe, what we hold true about who Jesus is and what we believe in him. And so today, as you probably guessed from the passage that we were reading, we are going to be studying the phrases conceived by the Holy, of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So those are the phrases that we are going to be walking through, and they come primarily from, from Matthew chapter 1, 
in Luke chapter 1. So in Matthew chapter 1, we get Joseph's perspective of this moment. And in Luke chapter 1, we get Mary's perspective of this, of this story. And so we're going to be looking at Luke 1 because this is born of the Virgin Mary, and that's where we're going to be focusing in on. And as we get started this morning, let me just give you guys just a, a word of, of warning or a word of uh, encouragement, whatever it may be. And let me just encourage you not to listen to this sermon in isolation. Because last week is really foundational and really important for what we're going to talk about this week. Now, this sermon can and I hope stands on its own, but it would be very wise if you were not here last week or didn't get a chance to hear it. Listen to the sermon last week as we set up this idea of who Jesus is and we begin to flow out of that. So do yourself a favor. Do yourself some homework if you want this week. Listen to that sermon if you didn't get a chance. Even if you did. Go and listen to it again. I listened to it one and a half times last week. So I encourage, or yeah, I encourage you, go back and listen to it. It'll help fill out some, some things that might, some gaps that might be missed as we walk through our text together this morning. And as we, as we dive into studying the virgin birth, I just came across an article this week from the Guinness Book of World Record that was talking about shocking birth and pregnancy facts. So here are a few of them for you. Um, the most children born to a single woman. Anyone have a guess? 69. 69 is the answer. And this lady was from Russia in the 1700s. She gave birth to 16 pairs of twins, seven sets of triplets, and four sets of quadruplets. She deserves more than a medal. Okay. All right. The heaviest baby that's ever born. This lady deserves a medal too. The heaviest baby that is ever born was 9.98 kgs, 22 pounds. And it was 28 centimeters long, born in January of 1879. The most premature baby to ever be born was a baby by the name of James Gill. was born in Canada in May of 1987. Guess how many days the pregnancy lasted? 128 days. 18 weeks, two days is how long the present. The pregnancy lasted, spent six months in NICU, but is healthy and live and things are, are well for them. The oldest woman to ever conceive naturally was a, from the UK and she was 59 years old. Most children delivered in a single birth came from a lady in California who gave birth to six boys and two girls in one time. And they are called octiplets. Um, so there's a fun fact for you. Here's another one. The longest interval between, longest amount of time between twins. Anybody got to guess how long this is? 90 days. 90 days. So what happened was there is Molly and Benjamin West from Maryland, America. And she gave birth to Molly on January 1st, premature. The doctors were able to stop her contractions and she gave birth to Benjamin on March 30th. So 90 days apart. And finally, the longest pregnancy in history. Now, when Ava was being born, she was 11 days late. And I was thinking like, we've got to be getting close to this record. Yeah, we weren't. So the longest pregnancy actually came from a lady called Wang Shi in China back in 2016. Her pregnancy lasted 17 months. 17 months. 
Why? Yes, good question. But so here's some facts and as strange and as crazy as mind blowing as they might be, a pregnancy lasting 17 months, giving birth to 69 children, as crazy as that is, it is nothing to the virgin birth. They, hold, they don't hold a cup of water to the amazing and the craziness that the virgin birth was. When I was, one of, my, one of my best friends growing up, he had his sister a few years ago, got rushed to the hospital. And as they were taking her to the hospital, they got there and so her, her, her dad and her boyfriend went with her to the hospital. She was having all kinds of issues. She was sick. She was in terrible, terrible pain, couldn't get up. And finally, the dad went up to the boyfriend and asked him, hey, is there, is there any way that she's pregnant? And he, he just says, no, no way that's going to happen. We've never done anything before. And he says, okay, well, you need to name that baby Jesus because she's in the delivery room. All of a sudden, the story changed a little bit because here's the reality. The virgin birth is not a, a rare occurrence. The, the virgin birth is not a, you know, a, a common occurrence. The virgin birth is a singular occurrence, one moment, one time in history. And the ramifications for that are life-altering. The ramifications for the virgin birth, what is teaching us about who Jesus is, is so significant for us. And here's what this part of the creed is teaching us, is that the creator became created and entered into his creation. Or as John puts it in John 1.14, so the word became flesh and blood and made his home among us. Or I like the way that Eugene Peterson words this in the message version of the Bible. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. This is what the creed is teaching us. That word there is, is tabernacled. He comes and he makes his tabernacles into our world. The tabernacle, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, is the place where God's presence dwelled. So now we see in Jesus, he tabernacles. God's presence comes and dwells among his people. So almost every false belief or cult or heresy that has come out comes from a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation, a, a twisting of these essential ideas of the creed. And so let's dive in. Let's see why is this actually important? Why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? Reason number one is the fulfillment of prophecy, is the fulfillment of prophecy. So Isaiah chapter 7 probably the most famous prophecy about the Messiah who is going to come. So in Isaiah 7, Isaiah is giving oh, some words to the people. He's giving them some hope and some message. Uh, giving, then, then the people, they ask for a sign. How can we know that these things are going to happen? Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, it's the tabernacle. God with us, tabernacling, being in our, our presence. So the first ever prophecy that we see about Jesus is all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, here's what we find. It's during the time when, when God is giving some punishments to, to Adam and Eve because of their sin. But there's another punishment that happens to the, to the serpent who has deceived Eve. In verse 14, it says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, graveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, 
between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So that the prophecy at the very end of verse 15, the offspring of a woman will crush the head of Satan. So this is the very first prophecy pointing us to Jesus. It's pointing us to, again, it's her offspring, not his, her. So it's coming from a woman. And again, in Isaiah 7, it's this idea of a virgin will give birth. And so perhaps as we walk through this, maybe like the fulfillment of prophecy really doesn't move the needle for you. Maybe that's not the most exciting point of studying this part of the, the creed, but it's so incredibly, incredibly important for us. So just as, as we're all here together, as a show of hands, so I just want you to raise your hand if you would classify yourself as an honest person, a person who, who typically keeps their word. Just go ahead and raise your hand. I think most of us would, right? Most of us would say we're honest people. When we make a promise, we make an agreement to someone like we want to keep that. I would agree that most of us are that way. All right. Follow up question. Show of hands. How many people have ever broken a promise? Yeah. As hard as we want to. Maybe maybe we had every intention of keeping that promise, but then there were some some circumstances that changed and made it impossible for that promise. Maybe you made a promise and you had no intentions of keeping it and you broke it anyway. But here's the reality. We have all broke our promises, but not God. When God makes a promise, he keeps a promise every single time, no matter what. God isn't looking back, shaking his head, and is like, oops, I over-promised over in Isaiah chapter 7 when he says a virgin is going to give birth. God isn't saying, oops, that's a little bit difficult. Not sure if I'm going to be able to keep that. God isn't doing that. There's no promise that he has made that he will not keep. And so it's significant, first of all, as we walk through why the virgin birth matters is because God said it was going to happen. And friends, let's just ask this question really. If God doesn't keep the very first promise in the Bible that he makes about Jesus, we're in a lot of trouble. But thankfully, he is able to keep his promise. He is able to fulfill this promise. In fact, what he says in in the passage that Nan read for us is the angel shows up. And I love this statement in Luke 1 verse 37 where it says, For the word of the Lord will never fail. The word of the Lord will never fail. I want to make sure that we note and we pay attention to who is doing the speaking here. It's not Mary. It's Gabriel. And I think that's really important for us. Is the most famous angel in the Bible is the one who is doing the speaking for, for God. He's the one vouching for God and saying, hey, I've seen it. I have seen that his word will never fail. I can, you can trust that his word will never fail. And this is this beautiful picture because here is someone who has been with God who can vouch for him. You guys ever had one of these moments where you were kind of skeptical about something until you had a friend who vouched for whatever it may be? Like you're, uh, a car garage can, can put on their business card that we are honest. Let, let, actually, let's make this even worse. A used car salesman can say on a business card that they are honest. And I'm going to tell you the truth. Like, that's not going to move the needle very much for me. If you can write on your business card that you're honest, it's going to make me question anyway if you have to put that on a business card, right? But here's this thing. But if I have a friend who comes along and is like, yeah, I've worked with these guys for years, you can trust them. 
That's gonna hold a whole lot more weight than saying that you're honest on a business card, right? And here's the thing, this angel that has been in the presence of God, who has been there, he is telling Mary, yeah, you can trust this because he is a promise keeper. You can trust him. This seems insane. This seems crazy. There's all this mystery that's surrounding this, but you can trust him because when God makes a promise, he keeps the promise. And I want to make sure we don't miss this. Because the Virgin Mary, the doctrine of being born of the Virgin Mary, this is a doctrine not about Mary, but about Jesus. Jesus is the main focus of this doctrine. Jesus is the main focus of this creed. This is what it's all about. You know, Mary, what she does, her response when she says, yes, I will do this, like that is highly, highly commendable. That's an amazing response. What we should all do as people, when God calls us to do something, just say, I'm the Lord's servant. Whatever he says, I will do. But this isn't a doctrine about Mary. This is a doctrine that is about Jesus, the focal point of this moment. And so as we read through the creed about Jesus, that he was conceived, don't miss that idea that he was conceived. Friends, he was born. Our creator steps into his creation by way of a birth canal. Don't miss that. Don't just glaze over that because we've heard the story time and time again. Like he chooses to enter humanity. He chooses to move into the neighborhood. He chooses to put on flesh and blood, not by some just like dropping out of the sky and like hanging out and being there. He chooses to enter in through a birth canal. If you are ever wondering whether God is concerned about the mess of your life, if you are ever wondering if God is concerned, if he's going to step down into the darkness, into the depths, into the grossness of your life, just remember that he was willing to step into a birth canal for you. And that's going to answer your question of how much God cares for you and the extent that he is willing to go for you and in your life. And so just because like the doctrine isn't about Mary, Mary is important. She's important in this moment for us because one of the prophecies has been about Jesus that he would come from the line of David. Maybe you remember, we spent four weeks of this in Advent through Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Through the stump of David's family will come a shoot. This is the Messiah that is going to come. And so as we walk through the lineages, the, the, the genealogies that we see in, in Luke chapter 3 or in Matthew chapter 1, it seems as if Luke 3's genealogy is about Mary's family line. So here's what we're seeing again is Jesus has God's divinity and David's DNA. God's divinity, David's DNA. God promises a woman offspring from the offspring of the woman will crush Satan's head. The virgin will give birth and God will tabernacle. God will be with us. The Messiah will come from David's line. And Jesus is the answer to each one of these things. So the first reason the virgin birth is important is because it is the fulfillment of prophecy. However, there is much more important than just the fulfillment of prophecy. As we walk through this even, even deeper, there is more, this event, the virgin birth, is closely, closely related with the deity of Jesus. And it cannot be understood apart from it. So the second reason that this is important is because he's the son of God. 
Jesus is the Son of, of God. And this is simple, but if Mary is not a virgin, Jesus would not have been God's Son. From what we know about Mary, she's a very virtuous woman. It would have been the son of Joseph. And, and that he might have been a good man. He would not have been the, been the God man, right? And so if he is not from the son of God, if, Joseph is, or if Mary is not a virgin, he can't be the son of God. He'd been the son of Joseph. In fact, his name probably wouldn't even be Jesus because when he shows up in Matthew 1, the angel shows up to Joseph. He says, name him Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. And so Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, 4, Paul writes this. He says, when the, time was, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Or again, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And so what I want to make sure we understand as we walk through this, as we see Mary's response, Mary asked this question. She says, how can this happen? Because I am a virgin. And this indicates and this confirms that this isn't some normal event that's going on. And sometimes in the 21st century, we have a tendency as people to think that we are, we are a lot more advanced and a lot more superior to people back, back then. Like we've got more medical advances. We're smarter as people. We've got all these things. And some of that might be true. We do have more medical advances. However, in the first century and in the 21st century, virgins didn't get pregnant and everybody knew it, right? And so this is one of those moments where Mary is like, wait a second, <laughs> this is not how things go. This is not the way things normally happen. Because as we begin to read through the Bible, what we begin to see is there are actually a number of supernatural births that happen in the Bible. There, there's, there's, serpil, there's miraculous births throughout Scripture. There's, there's Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham's nearly 100 years old. Sarah's 90. She's barren. Like, there's, this is a supernatural birth, so much so that when Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac, the reason he does that is because he believes that God can raise him from the dead because he has already brought death out of his, or life out of his dead body. And so this is what we see. This is a miraculous verse. A few, week, few weeks back, we talked about Hannah, and she gives birth to, to a son called Samuel. Once again, Hannah is barren. Years, not able to have children. Then eventually, one amazing thing happens, and there's this supernatural birth that she gets, she gets pregnant. And they have a son called Samuel. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, to Zachariah and Mary, or Elizabeth, the exact same thing. Like Elizabeth is barren. They thought she was barren. And then all of a sudden, she conceives, she gets pregnant, and she gives birth to a son. And these are all supernatural, miraculous births that happen. However, every single one of those stories includes this little phrase, she lied with her husband. So there was two people involved, but not Jesus. Jesus, that's not the way it works. No, it's the Holy Spirit who comes and, and who, who brings Jesus about to Mary. And so the message that we have to wrestle with, the message that the, the creed is telling us that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Now, when I was in college, I was writing an exegetical paper on, on a passage in Matthew. 
And I wrote that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And the, uh, the, my professor at the time was just being a grumpy old man. And he marked me off and said, nope, that's 200%. That can't happen. Because what he wanted me to say was this, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And I'm just like, that's semantics, right? But still got a decent enough grade on it. He just wanted me to use the same terminology that he would use. Whatever. Like, now I'm just scarred, right? This is what I have to say. But same thing is true. Fully God. He's fully man. And maybe as you walk through the creed, maybe, has anyone ever wondered why that the, was the, the creed is formulated? Have you ever wondered why it talks about Jesus being Lord and Christ and Messiah before it talks about him being born? Has anyone ever worried, wondered that? Or are you normal? Right? Because this is the thing, these are kind of the things that I'm like, why does that happen? Why did you do that? Because I think it's important. Because we have to get his deity right first before we can get anything else right. Before we do deal with anything else, we've got to come to grips with who he is. Again, last week was important. Go back and listen to last week. Stephen hit on this last week, but before Abraham, Jesus says in John, he says, I am. And it's one of those moments like, okay, Jesus, I am what? No, that's the statement. I am Yahweh. Before Abraham, I am. And the Pharisees are so undone by this, they grab their clothes, they, they grab stones, they want to kill him and said, this is blasphemy. He is claiming to be God. And so we see this moment. And as we begin to walk through the text, I love the way that Jack Cottrell kind of summarizes this in his, his theology book on the virgin birth. He says, if the biblical presentation of the person of Christ is correct, then he must have been God. Once this is accepted, the only logical, it's only logical to assert that his interest into the world must have been supernatural. There is only one means that could produce, that could properly provide the channel for the incarnation, the virgin birth. Thus, to confess the, to confess the virgin birth is to confess the deity of Christ. To confess the deity of Christ is to confess the virgin birth. And so we see this. When Jesus shows up, it is not just in his birth that we see that he is fully God and fully man. We see this in his life as well. Probably none more clearly than in Mark chapter 4. There's an incredible story that happens at the end of Mark chapter 4 where Jesus is forcing his disciples to get on the boat and go to the other side of the lake. And Jesus gets in the boat and he crawls in with them and he begins to, uh, Jesus is tired, okay? Like, let's just say, like, Jesus goes in the boat, he crawls to the back and he takes a nap. And like, let's just deal with the reality. This big storm begins to hit and Jesus is sleeping through it all. So this is how tired Jesus is. Not only is this in that peaceful ride, a little bit of rocking that's kind of rocking you to sleep. Like this is a massive storm. So big that the fishermen on the boat, the experienced fishermen are scared for their lives. And Jesus is sleeping. So we see the, the, the humanity of Jesus. Like this person who needed to take a nap. If you feel in any moment in your life that you need to take a nap, you're a lot like Jesus, right? Because Jesus needed to take a nap. Jesus needed to sleep. But then... They wake Jesus up, like, Jesus, don't you care if we drowned? And Jesus stands up. I, I picture him walk, wiping the sleep out of his eyes. And then he's just, hey, waves, wind, that's enough. Drop it, knock it off. 
And then it's calm again. And I wonder in that moment, what does Jesus do? All right, bud, guys, I'm going back to sleep. Like, what is, I don't know. We don't get that picture. But here's this beautiful thing. We see the humanity of Jesus. He is sleeping on a cushion. He's exhausted. He's tired. His body had limitations. But then we see the divinity of Jesus. He stands up in the boat and he says, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves, they stop. And the very end of this story, I think, is one of the most significant parts of it. In verse 41, here's the question. The disciples were absolutely terrified. You think? Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. The question that we all have to answer, and you've heard me talk about this before, is who is this man? Who is this man? Who is he? Who is Jesus to you? Because he is who he is, but who are you accepting him to be? Do you notice that the creed, when it talks about Jesus, it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He doesn't let us get away with the the Lord. He says, no, it's our Lord. So are we accepting Jesus as our Lord? Are we saying that you are Lord, you are Savior, and you are King, and every single thing in my life is going to be fundamentally shaped by that reality? The way that I live, the way that I love, the way that I act, everything is going to be shaped around the reality that you are Lord. Or is he just some distant the Lord, somebody's Lord? Or is he your Lord? Because Jesus is already Lord and Savior. Are we going to accept him as our Lord and Savior? Notice again, it's not the Lord, it is our Lord. And repeating again from last week, but this is significant, that is Jesus isn't God, he can't be our Lord. He can't be our master, because if so, that's idolatry. And that's blasphemy. And so when when Paul tells us that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, what is that? Is he what how? Is he our Lord? Are you accepting him as Lord? Are you accepting him as Savior? So the virgin birth wants to ensure that the divinity and the humanity of Jesus are known because unless Jesus is God, he can't save us. Unless Jesus is God, he can't save us. So here's the third reason that the virgin birth is important because he is the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is a man just like us. He was human just like us. But if all that he is is human, then he cannot be our savior. He cannot be our redeemer. He, in fact, needs to be redeemed. If if he is not God, if he is not, that is not who he is, he cannot be our perfect sacrifice. You've heard me say this before again, but I think it's, it's important. Is Jesus is human enough to understand us and God enough to save us. There is nothing that we face in life that Jesus can't say, yeah, me too. When we go to God in prayer, we don't have to try to explain our struggles or explain our feelings to him as if he doesn't understand because he put on flesh and blood. And he says, he tabernacles, he makes his way among us. You ever felt a bay, betrayed by a friend? So is Jesus. Jesus says, yeah, me too. You ever felt like someone misunderstood you? Jesus can say, yeah, 
Me too. You ever had someone call you crazy because of things you said or things that you believed? Jesus says, yeah, me too. And anything that we have experienced, God has said, yeah, yeah, me too. Because if he wasn't human, if Jesus isn't human and God isn't human, then he can't sympathize with us. Like he really, like there's no way to sympathize with us if he isn't human. But if we flip to Hebrews chapter four, we find that Jesus is, God is human. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 15, it says this. So then, since we have a great high priest who entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we did, yet he did not sin. This high priest of ours understands. Jesus understands. He knows what it's like. Yet he doesn't. He doesn't sin. And so with the scriptures, the the creed affirms, and this is what we believe, is that Jesus was sinless from start to finish. Jesus was sinless from start to finish. And as you begin to think about Jesus' life, like just think to yourself a moment in your life where you, where you fell out of place. You ever had one of those moments where you feel really out of place? For me, one of the things that I remember very much when I was a teenager, I was playing on this travel baseball team. And what we would do is we would travel around and we'd play tournaments and we'd roll up to one tournament. And the team that checks in before us, they all have like all the matching gear. They have matching shoes and matching slides and matching bats and matching hats, matching coats. And like they look like a nearly professional team. They're rolling in there. Then our guy and our team rolls up there. One lad forgot his glove. Another guy only has one cleat, one boot. And we're just like a bunch of ragtag misfits. Like we don't belong in the same league as these guys. We got on the field. It was also proven. But... You ever had one of these moments where you just don't feel like you belong? You don't feel normal? Like, think about Jesus, how he must have felt. Like, being this guy who who is without sin, but walking into the sinful world. The sinful nature, but yet he he doesn't conform. He doesn't give in to the temptations. Even though he is tempted, he doesn't give in to it. So he is sinless from start to finish. And Jesus' sinless life, like it is absolutely necessary if he is going to be, as Peter talks about Jesus in 1 Peter 1, if he is going to be a lamb unblemished and spotless. Jesus has to be sinless if he is going to be, as Hebrews 9 talks about, offered himself to God without blemish. If Jesus is not sinless, that he needs a redeemer. He can't be the redeemer. And so perhaps you've, you've done the, the reading the Bible in a year thing before. If you're anything like me, when you hit the book of Leviticus, it's a little bit of a slog. As you hit the book of Leviticus, you start being like, well, okay, this is, this is a little bit difficult. Because in the book of Leviticus, like, it is all these insane rules and insane instructions of how to like, offer sacrifices and all these other things. Weirdly enough, Leviticus is actually one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. Super weird. We can talk about why later. But one of the things that we see, a common theme that we see throughout the book of Leviticus, is whether it is a burnt offering in chapter 1, a peace offering in chapter 3, a sin offering in chapter 
chapter 4, a guilt offering in chapter 5, a, a vow in chapter 22, whatever it may be, is the offering has to be a perfect lamb without defect. 23 different times in the book of Leviticus that phrase is used. A perfect, spotless lamb without defect. And here's who Jesus is. Jesus becomes the true and better sacrifice that Leviticus pointed to. Sacrifice for our sin, for our guilt, for our shame, to bring us peace. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that, I, or that Leviticus is pointing to. And again, in Hebrews chapter 10, it, it identifies this for us. Hebrews 10 verses 8 through 10, he says this, First, Christ said, You do not want animal sacrifices or sin sacrifice or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them. They were, they were required by the law of Moses. Then he said, Look, I have come to do your will. He canceled the first covenant in order to put the second in effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. So in the book of Leviticus, what would happen is year after year, day after day, sacrifices would have to be made for the sins of the people. And the sin, what we find if we look a little bit earlier in, in Hebrews 10, is that the sacrifice, the blood of goats and lambs could never take away our sin. But then Jesus comes. And Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. And one of the beautiful things that we see with Jesus is not only is he a, a better high priest that, that, that uh, Hebrews is talking about, but he's a better sacrifice. He's not just the high priest who offers sacrifice. No, he is the high priest who is the sacrifice. And here's one of the amazing things that we see because of Jesus, because of the access that he has now granted us to the Father, because of who he is. If you look again to Leviticus chapter 16, there's a powerful moment in Leviticus 16. This is the pinnacle of, of Leviticus. It's the day of atonement. And there's a moment there, a little line, where God has given instructions to Aaron in 16 verse 2, where he tells Aaron, he says, you cannot walk into the most holy place anytime that you want. If you do, you'll die. And that's the promise, like that's the call. And Aaron is like the man. He is the top priest of the day. And God is telling him, you can't just walk into my presence and be okay with it. If you do that, you are going to die. But yet, if we flip back to Hebrews chapter four, we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. And because of that, listen to verse 16 of Hebrews four. Let us come th boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. So because of Jesus, we can walk into the place that even angels are afraid to walk into. Because of Jesus, we can walk into the very presence of God because he has made us holy. He has made us pure. He has made us right. And so Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary, proving his humanity and his divinity so that he can later be the perfect sacrifice who not only rolls back sins, but takes away sins. 
And now, because of Jesus, we can walk into the presence of God the way that we were always meant to be. Because in Genesis chapter 2, it talks about Adam walking with God. And with Jesus, this is where we can be again. So I believe in the virgin birth, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for who you are.